Good morning, everyone. How are you? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to uh, the New Testament, to 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And uh, in case you're a guest with us today, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a, uh, we're in a series right now called DNA. And uh, the underlying premise of the series is that because, uh, because every living, breathing human being has their own DNA, their own you know, unique God-given blueprint of what they're going to what they're going to look like, what they're going to act like. Um, we said the same must be true of every church because, you know, the church is not just an organization. It's, an, it's a living organism made up of human beings. And so as such, there are going to be certain things that God encodes uh, into our spiritual DNA, things that make us unique, you know, not, not better or worse than other churches, just, just unique. And so we're talking about what makes Parkview who we are, you know, the things that we believe, things that we're committed to, things that we value, uh, things that God has woven into our ecclesiastical genome, if you will. And uh, we've tried to capture these things in easy-to-remember uh, language. Here are the topics we're exploring. People matter, ridiculous generosity, everyday worship, better together, relevant teaching, and everybody does. And each uh, of these phrases represent an aspect of uh, of Parkview's spiritual DNA. And this morning I want to talk to you about relevant teaching, and specifically the relevant teaching of Scripture. Before we get started, though, let's pray. Our Father, I'm thankful again for the opportunity for us to be together. And um, and I I pray that in the moments that we have, um, before we again scatter into our daily lives, in the moments that we have together this morning, I pray that we would offer ourselves to you. Those words are easy to sing, um, but surrender is, uh, is a challenging thing for us as human beings. But um, I pray that in this moment, we would surrender ourselves to you, not just our hearts, but our minds as well. We offer you uh, all that we are, and we ask that you would teach us this morning, from your word, through which which you have given us truth and communicate life. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the Old Testament, the, uh, the psalmist sings, your word, O Lord, is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Uh, In the New Testament, when praying for his disciples, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then later on, the Apostle uh, Apostle Paul declares to the church when writing to a young pastor named Timothy, he declares in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, all scripture is inspired. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, uh, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In each of these cases... Uh, the same basic truth gets emphasized by the psalmist, uh, by the Apostle Paul, and by Jesus. Namely, that all Scripture is inspired by God and therefore is relevant to our lives. Now, I think that we would all agree that the Bible is a very unusual book. Uh, It is by far the all-time best-selling volume of literature ever. It's been translated into over 2,300 languages. It's been studied by more people, impacted more lives than any other document written. Uh, If you uh, visit teaching museums or universities around the world where scholars study ancient literature, uh, among the oldest documents they have are manuscripts of the Bible. 
If you turn on your TV, very quickly you find it's one of the most popular topics on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel. Uh, in fact, in April, NBC is um, launching a new series called The Bible A.D. The story continues, and it'll be interesting to see how um, NBC handles um, all of that. But uh, not only does Scripture apparently have entertainment value, uh, but it also provides the historical background to the world's three dominant monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So obviously, the Bible is a famous and fascinating book to most people. But more importantly, it's powerful and it's personal. And God hasn't uh, given it to us simply to line our library shelves or occupy archaeologists or fill time slots on A&E. You know, he's given us his inspired word to provide the basis for right, good, true, healthy, wise, spiritual living. You know, it's not to be deified or worshipped. Scripture is a means to an end. It's the special written revelation of God communi- communicating to us who he is and, and what he's done and what he has said, all for the purpose of impacting our lives both now and for eternity. And so as a church... You know, as a church, we are, we are committed to teaching the truth of Scripture uh, across the board to children, to, um, to, to students, to adults, to believers, unbelievers alike, to do so without apology, and to, to do so with an emphasis on relevant and practical application. You know, our goal, and certainly my goal when I stand up here uh, uh, and, and talk with you guys, is to teach the Scripture in a way that makes sense to people, you know, wherever they may, may be on their spiritual journey. But teaching, uh, teaching it is really only half the equation. We all, myself included, uh, n- should be committed to learning the Scripture, you know, because it is God's Word to us, to each of us. You know, how well do we really know it? Um, back in December, Newsweek magazine ran a lead article uh, entitled The Bible, subtitled, So Misunderstood It's a Sin. I don't know how many of you saw it or read it, uh, if, you, if you have read it, I know uh, when I did, I realized the author probably doesn't really know all that much about the Bible himself, uh, but he, at least he was writing about it, and he cites some interesting research. For example, he cites a Pew Research poll that found professed, get this, professed Christians rank only a bit higher than atheists in their familiarity with the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, he also cites uh, well-known researcher George Gallup, Jr., who, um, who asserts that Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they do not read it. And is that true, do you think? It probably is for a lot of people, but it shouldn't be true for us because we recognize uh, Scripture to be God-breathed, as Paul put it, to be, to be his inspired and relevant word to us. Uh, and along with that, we also know that the Scripture is reliable. It's a, it's, a credible, it's a credible document. And and look, I don't want to get overly technical, but I think there's some things we should talk about regarding this, because the Bible has what's called textual integrity. What I mean by that is, take the Old Testament, for example. The accuracy of our Old Testament has been verified through the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were these ancient parchments that were discovered in 1947 in a number of caves on the west coast of the Dead Sea. And the scrolls uh, date back to the 3rd century B.C., and they include all the books of the Old Testament with the exception of Esther. And what scholars have learned from the scrolls is that the Old Testament that we read today is virtually the same as what people read thousands of years ago. 
In fact, in an article titled The Dead Sea Scrolls Broke 19 Centuries of Silence, the Los Angeles Times says this, The reality was wondrous. The ancient writings included complete texts of almost every book of the Hebrew Bible, versions whose closeness to the modern texts demonstrate the amazing fidelity with which generations of scribes copied the scriptures. In short, uh, the textual integrity of our Old Testament is well documented and accepted. Uh, What about the New Testament? Well, unfortunately, we don't possess uh, the original writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or any of the New Testament for that matter. And so as with the Old Testament, the question then becomes, how well did copyists hand those texts down from 2,000 years ago till today? And in order to answer that question, we, we have to take several factors into consideration. First, uh, we need to think through the sheer number and volume of New Testament manuscripts that we have. There are over 6,000 handwritten Greek copies of the New Testament at our disposal, making it the world's most copied ancient text. Then there's the factor of the varying ages of these manuscripts, many of them dating as far back uh, as uh, 125 AD. Uh, Along with the Greek manuscripts, we have 8,000 handwritten copies uh, in Latin, uh, some of them 1,600 years old. We have thousands of copies written in Syrian and Coptic and a number of other languages. So basically, the New Testament is better attested to uh, by early copied manuscripts than any other piece of ancient literature. And due to that, due to the vast number of these ancient copies uh, and their early dates, their high quality of preservation and geographical distribution, it's possible to analyze and compare them together and through the science of text criticism, construct the original text with incredible accuracy. In terms of uh, historical framework and foundation, no other ancient documents that are similar were ever written in such close proximity to the person or the events that they were describing or reporting on. For example, based on uh, external and internal evidence, we know that the book of Acts was written around 60 AD uh, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their biographies of Jesus, dating back even further than that, to the mid-50s, even to the mid-40s, a mere decade uh, or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's really important. And here's why. No one, look, no one questions the veracity of written accounts of Alexander the Great, even though uh, those written accounts were penned 400 years, 400 years after his death. The teaching of the Persian prophet Zoroaster were written 800 years after his death. Uh, Buddha's biography was written 700 years after his death, and his teachings were were recorded uh, and written down 200 years after that. Muhammad, his biography written 135 years after his death. So you see, the New Testament accounts of Jesus are very unique that way in that they were written soon after his life, his death, and his resurrection. Just a few years, and uh, they are comparatively consistent. What do I mean by that? Well, the question is, do the Gospels, and that's what sometimes we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, their biographies. We refer to them as the Gospels. Do, do these documents complement one another or do they contradict one another? And there are some people who suggest that they, they contradict one another, and yet over the past 1,900 years, the New Testament has maintained its authenticity and its credibility because no one has ever proven contradictions actually exist. Those who claim there are suffer not so much from ignorance of the text, but more from ignorance of the laws of logic. 
Now, the term contradiction, uh, when used in regard to uh, biblical content, is used very loosely. Uh, and, and there are variations uh, in the biblical accounts in the sense that the gospel writers describe the same events from different perspectives. I mean, there's no question about that. But whether those varied accounts are in fact contradictory is a whole other issue. And when tested by formal logic, the alleged contradictions disappear. See, when it comes to the New Testament, especially, especially uh, the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, bear this in mind. We do have four very distinct accounts of Jesus' life. And so basically, we're not depending on the experience, or the witness, or the testimony of just one person. In fact, having four accounts that aren't exactly the same counters any argument that the writings were contrived. But, you know, it's interesting because if they were completely the same, they'd be criticized as fraudulent. But because there are variations in content, some want to call them contradictory. It's sort of like Scripture can't win one way or the other. But we do have, you know, four very distinct accounts of Jesus' life. Why? Because we have, very, we have four very distinct individuals who are, who, are the bio, who, are doing, who are writing the biographies. You know, Matthew, for example, he was an apostle, right? But he was also a tax collector. John was an apostle, but he was a fisherman. Mark was not an apostle. He was just a close associate of Peter's. And Luke was not an apostle, but he was a well-educated Greek physician. And so, as one would expect, each guy wrote in a little different style with different nuances and, and with different audiences in mind. And none of the accounts were ever intended to be exhaustive biographies of Jesus. In fact, at the end of his document, the Apostle John says, you know, everything I've written is true. He says, but Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. So you see, each, each biographer each author was selective in the material and the events he chose to include, uh, which I don't know, just makes a lot of sense to me. And here's the thing. When, when, uh, when people, often when people see uh, or describe the same event, uh, they'll, do, they'll describe it in, in different ways. Do you know what I mean by that? Take, for example, last Sunday's snowstorm. Uh, it was a biggie. And... Um, uh, if my wife, if Margie and I told you about our experience with the snowstorm at home, about our driveways and our sidewalks, she might say that they were, they were you know, it wasn't too bad. They were nice, they were, they were nicely cleared uh, and kept clear because Ray kept going out and shoveling every five minutes. He was obsessed, you know, with keeping the snow off them. But I would probably tell you, well, you know, they really weren't that clear, uh, and they just, they needed attention, and I wasn't really shoveling, I was just pushing snow uh, off, and obsessed, I think not, obsessed, <laughs> uh, just being a responsible neurotic property owner, you know. The, but see, we would describe the same storm, and the same, the same driveway, the same sidewalks, the same property care, but as different people, we'd have a little bit of a different take on it, you know, a different emphasis, different perspectives, but that doesn't make our accounts contradictory. And likewise, when John records a miracle that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, it's not a contradiction, it's just an additional piece of information. Or if Matthew uh, omits an event that Mark records, it's not a contradiction, it's simply a different, uh, there's a difference in emphasis. You know, one account may be providing a brief overview of an event, 
while another provides a more detailed picture of the same event. There's, there's nothing deceptive, there's nothing inconsistent, there's nothing unusual um, about that, about different individuals reporting the same event with different vantage points and perspectives and, and, and emphasis. I mean, just read the newspaper. Read a couple newspapers. It happens every single day. All this to say is that the Scripture, Old and New Testament, is unparalleled in its integrity, its history, its consistency, and rises to a level that surpasses all the, all other works of ancient literature. Here's my Ray K summary. We can trust it. It's reliable. And here's the thing. It's also quite readable. And God has not preserved his word for us down through history so that we, so that we, we have some ancient document to, to just diagnose and critique in vain academic exercises or to treat like some esoteric manuscript that can only be interpreted by a limited number of, of clerical scholars or brainiacs. No, no, no. God has given his word for average slobs like me. That's true. Why? So that I can read it. And so that I can, I can, I can gain insight, insight into who God is and what he's done in the world and what he's done for, for me, what he's done for all of us, how he wants us to live our lives in ways that are right and good and healthy and safe and best for us as human beings. But it's not only so that you and I can know God intellectually, but also that we can know him experientially as he reveals himself through his word, as he reveals truth about his power, his justice, um, his holiness, his faithfulness, his love, his incarnation, his sacrifice, his grace. And so uh, as I read it, uh, as I study it, and, and come to better understand these things in my head, it impacts my heart. You know, it doesn't just change my thinking, it changes my behavior. And... Um, you know, Scripture has this, this, this rational and experiential effect on us. But so often, you know, people say to me, well, okay, I, I kind of get that, but man, I just have a really hard time reading it. I, I, just, I just don't know how to read Scripture. I don't, I don't really get it. And with all due respect, that's nonsense. And, and here's why. My contention is that if you can read and understand today's newspaper, then you have the interpretive skills necessary to read and understand Scripture. And that's true for all of us. It's true for all of us if we do two things. First, if we pray and with humility ask God to teach us and by, you know, by the work of his spirit uh, uh, in our lives that his spirit would lead us into the truth, illuminate, illuminate the truth for us, enable us to understand what he wants us to know and to do so humbly. And then when we read scripture, we just follow the rules. That's the second thing. Follow the rules. You say, well, what rules? The rules of reading, the rules of interpretation. We all know them. We all have learned them. We're all pretty good at them. We use them every single day, right? We all know that different books, for example, are to be read in different ways, correct? For example... Uh, the yellow, DuPage Yellow Pages. It amazes me that this book still shows up on my driveway. <laughs> and, I, and what's even more weird is I actually keep it and I put it in the, you know, in, in, above my refrigerator, which is, I just don't really open it. But if I were to open it, I would, I would say to the people who wrote it, it's a wonderful document. It really, it's a wonderful document. It's well organized. It's helpful if you use it. But it's not something you sit down and read cover to cover while you're sipping hot tea. Right? Uh, it has a lot of information, but it's just not that interesting. So we read it by what? We read it by phone book rules, yeah? 
You know, when you're looking for a business number or a person's name, you look it up, you look them up alphabetically, you get the information, and you just move on. But that's not how you read poetry. It's not how you read a novel or or a history book or a personal letter. Why? Because there are different rules for different books, different documents. On the same way, there are appropriate rules for reading scripture. Unfortunately, unfortunately, some people they make the mistake of bringing, you know, bringing other rules from other books uh, uh, to the biblical text. Uh, some people, for example, bring roulette rules to Bible reading. What's roulette rules? Well, they, they close their eyes, they open the page, they put their finger down, and they say, well, this is what God wants to say to me today. And let me tell you something that's really silly, and it's risky. Because what if you point to Jeremiah 7, 29? It says, cut off your hair and throw it away. <laughs> That is not a problem for me, <laughs> but it's a problem for a lot of you, right? I mean, reading scripture that way can lead to cosmetic tragedy. It could lead to uh, economic disaster or prompt you to go out and slaughter a bull or something, you know? That's not the way the Bible's intended to be read. So what are some of the rules for reading it? Well, rule number one is this, to always remember when and where the Bible was written. It was, it was penned over, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 years by 39 authors who wrote 66 different books, none of them in English, you know, but originally in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They were written within the cultural and geographical context of the ancient Near East. And so when you read it, you can expect to hear about camels and goats and deserts and, and other historic and cultural events that were part of that world. You know, you can't open Scripture and, and expect to find information on snowboarding or, you know, computer programming, the NBA draft. You're just not going to find those things in there, right? And so just as we would with any other piece of literature, we read the Scripture keeping in mind the time, the place, the setting of the authors, what they were experiencing, who they were writing to, what was the purpose of their writing. And we take all that, we take the truth of that, the principles of the text, and we bring that to bear on our own time, our own place, our own experiences, and we apply the truth to our lives. Uh, rule two, realize the Bible is factual. In other words, it's not, it's not just a bunch of nice stories and moral anecdotes. It's a record of real people having real experiences and real events in their lives. And because, look, because things in this world, this broken world of ours, because sometimes things among broken people and nations, sometimes really bad and ugly things happen, as we all know, along then with the comforting and encouraging parts of Scripture come disturbing realities. You know, it reflects and records what's true in this world of ours, and therefore at times it includes violence and brutality and sexual imagery and stories of pain and failure and betrayal as well as those of joy and victory and loyalty. Here's the, again, here's the irony. You know, if Scripture only recorded the niceties of, of human life and human nature and ignored the negatives, it would be condemned as unrealistic. But because Scripture at times relates the ugliness of our world and human nature, some denounce it as primitive and uncivilized. Again, Scripture can't seem to win. But it's simply being factual. It's, it's, it's telling us the truth. It's not making stuff up. It's, and certainly not sugarcoating reality of life in a broken world. It's telling us the truth about things. For example, you guys realize, right, that DNA, current DNA research has proven 
that a genetic link exists between Jews and Palestinians? In other words, the biblical account of those nations originating from one common ancestor is true. DNA proves it. The scripture says it's Abraham. And I'm just thinking, can someone please talk to Jewish people and Palestinians and let them know that the person they hate the most could be and probably is a long-lost brother or sister just separated by the tides of history? Can someone please tell them? According to a a recent article in the Jerusalem Post, uh, Israeli archaeologists just finished unearthing the remains of King Herod's palace in Jerusalem where scholars believe Pilate put Jesus on trial. Here's a picture that was in the Jerusalem Post. It's a picture of the entryway to Herod's uh, uh, palace. And uh, uh, according to the article, as of last month, January, uh, you, can, you can now travel to Jerusalem's old city and you can visit the, the site and stand where that trial unfolded, where history took place. Here's my point. As we read the scripture, realize it's relating the facts of history to us. Rule three, recognize it's written in various literary styles. Um, In a sense, it's not not just one single book. It's really kind of a library of books that are bound together with one cover and includes a wide range of writing genres. And that's why when people make comments like like when they say, uh, uh, I only take the Bible literally or... I only take the Bible figuratively. They're, they're both being intellectually dishonest, whether they realize it or not. Because the Bible is loaded with historical narratives and, and, and poems and songs and reports and personal correspondence. And so the same skills that we use to interpret language and poetry and music and history books and newspapers and, and emails and text messages uh, should be used when interpreting the Scripture. And that's why when people ask me those kind of questions, and, you know, sometimes folks, they'll say, you know, well, tell me, do you take the Bible literally? And my answer to the question is this. I say, well, here's the deal. I take, I take the literal statements literally and the figurative statements figuratively, and I use common sense and experience and knowledge of language and history and grammar and context to know the difference and then determine what figures of speech may mean. For example, the psalmist, as uh, uh, we had read for us earlier, uh, Afton read, uh, the psalmist says, God will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you'll find refuge. Does that mean God's a big bird who's going to sit on us? (laughs) Well, no, you know that's not the case. It's poetry, and poets say weird things, you know. They say strange things to press their ideas. They're creatives. They love using word pictures. And and in this case, the the ancient poet is saying, he's actually singing. He's saying, God will take care of you. He will take care of us. What about when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God? You don't have to be a physicist to know that a real camel is never going through the eye of a, of a sewing needle. It's just never going to happen. It's a messy prospect. You know, it's not, it's not going to work out very well. And so, okay, so is then Jesus saying that rich people don't get to go to heaven? Well, No. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration to make his point. The point that people who have a lot of wealth don't always see or feel the need for God. That's what Jesus was saying. When Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep, was he suggesting that he was made of wood? He said, I am the vine, that he was a yucca plant or something, you know, organic material. Or when he, when he gave matzah and wine to the disciples and said, eat and drink, this is my body, this is my blood, was he 
advocating some spiritual form of cannibalism? Well, no. Jesus was using comparative analogy. It's the way that he taught. It's the way that we teach. It's the way that we, it's the way that we talk to one another every day. We do it all the time. It's part of every culture. It's part of our culture. If I told you I was a pig over the holidays, was I running around oinking on the ground all fours? <laughs> right? We use these, we, and I wasn't really that much of a pig over the holidays. Uh, a slob maybe, but not a pig. Um, but we, we use this kind of language and imagery and exaggeration all the time. And we know how to interpret it. We've learned how to do it. Then some people say, well, okay, I, I, I get that. I get that. But what about, what about the book of Revelation? Hmm? That's a weird one. Yeah? Apocalyptic literature? What do we do with that, with all the, the symbols and the analogies and the predictions and the beasts and, and all those things? And, you know, well, here's the thing. Just like anything else, those things need to be understood as best that we can in terms of original intent and the style of the author, who happens to be the Apostle John. But look, sometimes, sometimes things in Scripture are hard to figure out. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes they are. But most of the time, the majority of the time, Scripture isn't hard to figure out. Why? Because we're all quite good at discerning what we read. We do it every day. We've learned to recognize how different styles of writing uh, have different ways of accomplishing their purposes. And so, we, and so we read and we interpret things accordingly, and we do a pretty good job of it. And we just need to apply the same things to Scripture. Rule number four, respect the context. You know, we can't just pick out certain words or phrases we like and expect to understand them uh, independently of what surrounds them. Because it's like someone would say to you, hey, do you know, do you know the Bible says there is no God? You say, What? Yeah, yeah, the psalmist in the Old Testament says there's no God. So you're kidding me. Well, it's true. The psalmist says there is no God. But, in the, but the phrase appears in a broader context where he actually says, a fool says in their heart, there is no God. Right? That changes the whole meaning of things, right? I mean, whenever we read Scripture, we've got to give it the same fair treatment we give any other book. And that includes respecting the immediate context in which statements are made. Rule five. We need to reject read-in meanings. Now, one of the reasons we study Scripture is to learn. It's meant to teach us, and therefore we shouldn't try to teach it. We need to make sure that we take from God's Word what it has to say on its terms, not ours. Otherwise, it's like, it's like the guy who tells his wife that, you know, that, that, they, that they can't build a house in the country, or they, can, they can't build a house in the city where she wants to live. They have to build out in the country. And she says, what are you talking about? Why do we have to do it? And he, so he cites some scripture. He says, well, scripture says, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field to no spaces left, and you live alone in the land. Now, this text has absolutely nothing to do with building a house in the city or the country. It was, however, God's warning to greedy and unscrupulous landowners in Israel. And yet this guy says to his wife, God curses anybody who builds houses next to each other. You can't, we can't live in the city. We've got to live out in the country. And that's just taking, taking the words of Scripture and twisting them and misusing them. And it's an absurd illustration. But trust me, people do this all the time. And they make crazy claims in the name of Scripture, and they're just twisting it and misusing it for their own purpose. We can't do that. We can't do that. Which brings us to rule six. Research and get help. 
You know, there are things in Scripture that can be easily misunderstood, no question. For example, the Bible is not necessarily assembled in chronological order. Now, most of us know that to a certain extent, we know that it's divided into the Old Testament and New Testament, right? And the Old Testament does indeed chronologically precede the events of the New Testament. But what you may not know is that the first part of the Old Testament, about 40% or so, is historical literature. And so from, from Genesis to Job, you find that things are pretty much chronologically arranged. And then after Job comes the Psalms. It's a collection of lyric poetry most of which were written during the period of history covered from Genesis to Job. So they sort of overlap. The rest of the Old Testament, from Proverbs to Malachi, uh, was written during and after that first historical period. So the point is, you can't read from Genesis to Malachi and think you're getting everything in order. You're not. Same Same was true with the New Testament. In the first five books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are history books, basically. They're biographies, biographies of Jesus, biographies of the early, biography of the early church. And then Romans, the letter of Romans to Revelation, uh, is literature written during and after that period of history covered in the first five. So again, it's not in exact chronological order. But if you don't know that, how do you find that out? Or suppose you're, suppose you're reading Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And you have no idea that um, the Samaritans were an ethnically mixed group. What they were was they, they were a bunch of uh, Israelites who intermarried with the Assyrians and a whole bunch of other foreign people groups. And, and so the, the, the Jewish people who didn't intermarry, man, they, they hated the Samaritans for that. They, they're, they're betrayers. They were, they were half-breeds. You know? they, they, were, they, they, they hated one another. There was deep prejudice between the two peoples. And that's why it's, it was such a big deal in Jesus' story for the Samaritans to stop and would love, care for that Jewish guy who had been mugged and left in the street to die. But how would you know that? Well, fortunately for us, we have all kinds of helpful resources and tools today available for Bible study, you know, the most basic of which are study Bibles, you know. And many of you have them. Some of you don't, but if not, you should get one. They have introductions to the books. They have footnotes and margins, marginal notes and cross-references and dates and maps, all of, all of that information to help us better understand and interpret what we're reading. I know an interesting one is, is called the Quest Bible. And it's interesting to me because uh, what they did with this, this, this particular study Bible is the editors, they went out and they asked a whole bunch of different people to read through the Scripture and write down every single question they had about any particular text. And they got hundreds and hundreds of questions. And then they sifted through those questions and they took the most frequent, frequently asked ones and they gave them to the Bible scholars who then wrote short answers that were then added to the margins or to the footnotes for study purposes. And so you can, be, you, know, you can be reading something and say, man, what does that mean? And look to the margin or look to the footnote and, and, and find out. It's very, very helpful. And of course, you can go out and you get Bible dictionaries and now there are, there are, there are computer programs that are really, really good to use. But what's also very helpful is reading and studying Scripture with other people. Doing it in community. I mean, it's just a really effective way of learning and growing and interacting with the truth of Scripture and dialoguing about it and, and, and sharing with one another that, that learning experience. And that's why we offer and we encourage our people to be involved in things like Wednesday classes or more specifically in life groups where, where we get together in smaller, smaller communities to study and to learn and to grow together. 
And if, if you're interested and you want to, you're not connected with one and you want to get connected, I encourage you to, to uh, contact Kim Whetstone, our spiritual formations pastor, and she'll be happy to help you whatever way she can. But all this to say, folks, is this. Uh, there are churches in America today that, that hesitate to study or even refer to Scripture in fear of offending somebody. And I don't know, man, that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, in my experience, people who come into the context of a church uh, meeting uh, are expecting you to talk about God, expecting you to pray, and most of them are expecting you to talk about the Bible. So <clears throat> not to make, makes no sense to me. I mean, ask Newsweek Magazine, ask George, George Gallup Jr., network writers at NBC. Americans are intrigued with the Bible. They see it as a famous and fascinating document. They revere it. So why would they not want to talk about it? More importantly... The Bible is God's inspired word to us and to the world. It reveals to us who he is. It's the legacy of his faithfulness and love. It records God's plan for humanity's redemption, and it brings to us the good news of his grace offered in and through Jesus. Now, make no mistake about it. Scripture is, as Paul put it, God-breathed. All Scripture, God-breathed, it's, it's divinely inspired, and it's readable, it's reliable, and it's relevant. And as a church, we are committed, we are committed to opening it, studying it, learning it, applying it, obeying it, and teaching it as, as best that we can to anyone who will listen. That is just part of our spiritual DNA. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we look around the world, um, we see the creation that cries out of your existence, the intricacies of nature, the beauty of nature, the complexity of, of human beings, all the things around us that we see and touch and experience cry out and reveal you are God, the creator of all things. But you have also given us this written revelation that communicates who you are and what you want from your people and what you're offering the world. You've inspired the authors of Scripture to record events and truths that we can, we, can, we can learn from. And you have preserved, you've preserved these documents down through history, through thousands of years, for our benefit. It is the legacy of your, your faithfulness and love. It is the story of your grace. It is the record of, of Jesus, who came and lived and died and was resurrected to life and who changed the course of human history. And we're thankful for this revelation. And I pray, Lord, that as your people, we would not just revere your word, but we would, we would study it and we would learn it together. And in so doing, not just learn more about you intellectually, which is a good thing, but, but learn about you and experience you as your spirit moves in our lives. And so we're grateful um, for the scriptures and for this story of redemption 
and this, this reality of your love and your grace and the reality of Jesus who, who offers it to us. And we celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you all for being with us, and you know, may, maybe you're here today, and uh, this whole this whole Christian thing is new to you. Um, maybe you haven't been in church for a long time. Maybe maybe it's because you used to go, and you just felt like you just, it was all about guilt and work and performance, and it just wore you out, wore you down, and you kind of gave up for a while. But you found your way back. But you're still asking questions about this idea of Christianity. Understand that the Scripture teaches it's about the love and grace of God. That's what makes the good news of Jesus so incredibly good. Yeah, it's not about your performance. And if you have questions about that, hey, come down front uh, following service. Talk to some of our prayer uh, folks who will be down here. They'll be glad to talk with you more about it. Or talk to someone you know from Parkview about their, their life story, their, their spiritual journey, and let them share with you about the, the grace of God and what, what it's meant to them. But uh, thanks for coming this morning, and I hope you can come back next week. We're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of DNA, what makes us who we are, and uh, hopefully you're finding it helpful. Yeah. So have a great week. Let me pray for you. Now, Lord, I, I ask that as your church leaves the building, as we go out into our world, into our lives, uh, that we go with a great sense of your love and grace and the knowledge of you, our God, that has been revealed to us both through nature, the world around us, and all through also through your scriptures, but even more specifically through Jesus himself who loves us and gave himself for us. And it is by his grace and his sacrifice that we are forgiven and offered life everlasting. May we bring the truth of that and may we live that truth out every day in a way that points people to you, their God. And now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.